Father, we come before you giving you thanks as we are supposed to do according to your word because you provide everything. You provide the air, the sunlight, the houses, the beds that we sleep in. We are so grateful. And so we say thank you. We also give you thanks for your Holy Spirit who teaches us and guides us, convicts us, and consoles us. We pray for a fresh outpouring of your Spirit, Lord, that we may have understanding for he also teaches us. So, Father, as we get into your word, may you have your way and your will in our hearts and minds as we go through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Left off in Matthew chapter 6, and we're talking previously about adultery, the taking of oaths, the giving to those who ask in loving your enemies. And now we have gotten into the giving prayer and fasting, and there is a time for each one of these. And there's a time duration that we participate in each one. And we are to be a witness in all of these areas that we're going to be going over again, the giving, the prayer, and the fasting. And of course, we are not to do it in an ostentatious manner where everybody sees what we do, whether it's the giving or the prayer or the fasting, just in order that we might be seen. And if you recall, I talked about the Pharisees, how they loved to do that. When they would give of their alms, their offerings, their tithes, they would sometimes do it with great fanfare and they would bring maybe pouches of money to the temple and they'd drop it off if they were wealthy. And also with prayer, they'd stand on the street corners and they'd raise their hand and they'd make this ostentatious prayer um, and they would shout so everybody could see them and they wanted people to have an idea that they were so holy, so special, so mature in their faith. And also with fasting, they would go to the nth degree and they would disfigure their bodies, their faces, and they would have sackcloth and ashes on. And people, they wanted people to look at them in such a way that they thought, oh, they're so holy and they're so righteous. But good deeds which are done in secret cannot be hidden because eventually somebody is impacted by it. Somebody sees it. It's like Jesus when he had healed individuals. He'd say, now don't go tell anybody, only go to the priest. But they would shout it from the rooftops, and so they could not be hidden. But the Lord commands us as individuals, do all these things in secret. Do not make announcements about them. Do not go out and seek some pharisaical type of righteousness in what you're doing. But simply go out and commit to these tasks, do them, and do them without broadcasting it. Now, we're going to pick it back up in verse 1, since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been here. It says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret, three times, secret, will reward you. And whenever a word pops up like that in Scripture multiple times, you want to pay attention to it. So he's, make, he's putting emphasis on this idea of secret and also not to be seen by men. And we go into the Lord's Prayer. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. In other words, don't repeat a prayer over and over and over and think the number of words spoken will actually cause God to turn to you and say, well, because you've said it so many times, Therefore, I must answer, kind of like writing on the chalkboard, I will no longer pull Susie's hair 100 times. Like that's some meritous or meritorious type of action. It's not. It's more of a punishment to have to do that on the chalkboard, and I'm sure it's kind of a punishment to God to listen to you over and over and over and over, kind of like some of the songs that are out there today. They don't have a lot of words. They're not very verbose. They have a line, and they repeat it like 50 times. And if that makes good music, well, great. But we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to just make our words, be few, direct to God. He wants to hear, and he wants the fellowship with us. He doesn't want us to be like robots. Verse 8 says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. And he gives an outline how we're supposed to pray. He doesn't say, I want you to repeat this every day of your life. No, he gives an outline as what he's doing it. By the way, there's nothing wrong with saying the Lord's Prayer. Now going on, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins... Your father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So giving secretly, without proclamation, not ostentatiously, not flamboyantly, without seeking recognition, honor, or anything like that for the gift that you give. I've talked to you about the giving tree on the walls and the glass panes at the Crystal Cathedral, things like that. We we choose not to recognize people here in a formal way up with their giving, except by a letter at the end of the year. And I explained all of that, how that happens. And then praying, do not stand in front of men and women praying to be seen by them so that you can get the honor. That's what God wants us to avoid. Do not babble in vain repetition. The same words over and over, understand that God knows what we need, and forgive offenses whenever we are given the opportunity. So that's the outline for prayer. Then there's another one here about fasting. Do not look downcast, sullen, grim, or gloomy. Do not starve when fasting to the point of disfiguring your face or your body. Do not let it be obvious and let it be done in secret. So those are the basic outlines for giving, for prayer, and for fasting. But I'm going to expand this a little bit and righteousness does not come 
by doing, righteousness is imputed to us. It is given to us. The word justification means to be declared right. When we get saved, God looks at us and there's a judicial act. And he says, you are justified, which means you are declared to be in right standing with God in relationship with him. Those who do not ask to be saved, to go to heaven, to have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they have not been justified. They have not been declared righteous. And the people that think that they can do works and be declared righteous are misinformed. That is not what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, there are those people like the Church of Christ. They think you have to be baptized in the Church of Christ in the name of Jesus only by the leaders of that church, and therefore you will be saved. And that's just doing a work. And they will say, well, it's a work of salvation. No, the work of salvation is done by Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit or God the Father declaring us justified in his sight. That's how we get saved. And so this idea of works and Uh, not election, but salvation being connected as being necessary, it is not. Now, this is where the confusion sometimes comes in. This idea of having righteous works will be an outflow of the salvation you have. If there is no outflow, for instance, uh, you guys know that there is the Sea of Galilee in Israel. It's up above Jerusalem, and it flows down. The Jordan River comes down, and it empties into... Do you guys know what body of water it empties into? It's the Dead Sea. Now, I've been to the Dead Sea, and guess what? It's dead. There's nothing living in there. It is a salt encrusted on the bottom, and you're buoyant. But the water in the Sea of Galilee, you go right up to the edge of the Sea of Galilee in one of the hotels in Tiberias there. You can go right up to the edge, and there's this big wall that's right up against the water. And you look in there, and you got fish like this just floating around. You can see the fish in the lake. It's so clear. It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. You, you look at the Jordan River, and it goes down, and it gets a little green and murky in some places. But it's mostly, it's mostly clear. Then it gets to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is crystal clear. But it's dead. So the water, say it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into our life if we're the Sea of Galilee. And there's abundant fish. There's abundant food for all to participate in receiving. The same thing with the flowing, the outflow. The love of God comes in our hearts and it flows out to others in the form of works. And so the water flows out. It's the Jordan River. There's fish in it. There's abundant life on its banks everywhere. The fishermen are going up and down. It's all good. But then it hits the Dead Sea. You got the Holy Spirit, so to speak, the water of life in your life. And if there's no outflow, what happens? You die. There's no works at all. You don't follow Christ. And so he says that we are destined for good works. We just have to find out what that good work is. For instance, or good works, on Thursday nights with the men, we're getting into the gifts. We're going through a series of just ethical and moral questions, and we're doing a long-form discussion on it. I'm not just giving them a couple of verses, but I'm giving them questions. I'm saying, well, what about this, and what about that, and, you know, I think it's wrong. And another guy was like, well, I think it's right. 
And so we'll have a discussion about it so it gets cemented into their minds having to discuss and debate these types of things. Well, we got to the idea of spiritual gifts. Each of us has at least one spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, both in Ephesians and the book of Romans, it lists the gifts that are in there. And those, each one of us has at least one gift. And so God has fashioned us in such a way that he wants the works to flow in our particular area. It may be the gift of organization. It may be the gift of helps. It may be the gift of teaching. It may be the gift of prophecy. But he expects us to use it, to, to use the gift. Like, for instance, if I was a, a carpenter or a contractor, a general contractor, and I was building a house, and a guy showed up to the job, and I said, here, here's a 22-ounce hammer. I want you to go and frame this building up, this house. I want you to frame it up. And the guy puts the hammer and sticks it in his tool belt and walks around and just fiddling with nails all day long. He doesn't use the hammer. God has given us a hammer. Now, you might not want to say a hammer because as a Christian, you go around beating people upside the head with a hammer. But you get the idea. God has given us a gift. He's given us a tool, and he expects us to use that tool. The question is, do you know what your gift is? And you don't use it to be seen by men. Now, it's real easy, especially for those who are teachers, If they go out and they receive the praise from men and women because they've done something good, well, they go out there and go, yeah, I am good, aren't I? The Lord has blessed me with this gift. That's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about anybody with the gift of teaching. We're supposed to do this humbly. And by the way, teachers receive the greater judgment because they know. So if you want to sign up for that, say, I want the gift of teaching, go right ahead. But if this idea that God gives us a gift, he still wants us to use it. And if we don't use it, then our gifts in heaven, when we get there, our reward is diminished. And God says, okay, first, don't do your works before men to be seen by them, but do your works. Make sure you are faithful not to do it in an ostentatious manner, to flamboyantly where people see what you're doing. Make sure you do it in secret, and the Father will reward you in secret, and he'll reward you in heaven for doing those things. But do them. If we say, well, you know, yeah, giving, praying, fasting. I don't like fasting. I don't like any of those things. I'll, I'll tell you right out, I don't like to pray. My flesh hates it. My flesh says, don't you have something else to do? You know, you, you, shouldn't you be getting to work? What about work? Yeah, work. It's satisfying. Think about work. And I have to tell myself, no, I'm not going to think about work. And giving, you know, hilarious giver. That's what the scripture says. You're to give hilariously. You know what that means. We should be hearing laughter coming from the foyer. <laughs> drop it in there and you walk out that type of thing but just don't do it so where anybody can hear it laugh under your breath <laughs> and drop it in there and so god wants us to be hilarious in the giving and deny the flesh the chance to say no and complain and all that and fasting and i like my cheeseburgers i like in and out and the body says feed me and you say no and it says feed me and you say no and it says feed me you know it said no So you have this struggle going on back and forth. So just to make it clear, if I haven't made it clear, do the works, but don't do them to where everybody knows what you're doing because you want the honor and the glory. Am I getting through? This is good. I didn't hear an amen. Okay, good, good. Now, works testify about our righteousness. 
James chapter 2, verse 21, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. You see, it wasn't works that stand alone. It wasn't faith that stands alone. It is faith and works, and that works together. But the works do not bring the salvation. The works are an outflow of salvation. So how are we to actually give, like money, you know, and and of our time and everything else? Well, according to our income, proportionally. If you make $100, just for round numbers, if you make $100, should you give $100? Well, normally, no. How much should you give? Well, ask the Lord. And some people will say, well, should it be 10%? Look, if you want to get into the 10%, this is the one thing I disagreed with my pastor on. And I told him. He goes, do you disagree with anything that we teach here at Calvary Chapel? I said, yes. And his eyes opened wide. He said, what? And I said, tithing. Because he would talk about tithing. And I said, I don't agree with the tithe. Because if you look up in the Old Testament, the way the tithe worked... It was 10%. Like every week you give 10%. You bring it to the temple. You bring it to the synagogue, 10%. Well, then you're also supposed, once for the temple or the synagogue, the poor, and and then you give another 10% to the priest. And then every third year was one specifically for the poor and the Levites that you were supposed to give. So if somebody says, I give a tenth, well, the Old Testament tithe is 23 and a third percent. Now you're talking governmental standards or or even more, you know, the government now. But this idea that it's 23 and a third percent, if you want to go by the Old Testament tithe, that's what it's supposed to be. And my pastor and I, we didn't walk away going, it should be 23 and a third percent. No, it should be 10 percent. We didn't do that. I just said, that's what I hold to. And we're supposed to give in accordance with our ability to pay. So you have to determine how much is that. Is that 10%? Is that 40%? Some people say, well, it's closer to 100%. And there's some people that actually do that. They give away almost everything that they bring in. And, of course, they would have the gift of giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12 says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And so we should not feel this burden, this capitulation, this boot on the neck when we give. We're to give freely. The only problem is most people don't ask God, how much do you want me to give? Trust me. Ask him and he'll tell you. And you might say, really? You'll hear his voice? No, you'll just know. You'll know if you've given, if you have the spirit of God in you, you'll know if you're giving enough or if you're not giving enough. We're to give it without ostentation or fanfare. I've already covered that. We're to give regularly. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, this dealt with an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And Paul was giving instruction. He said, now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do on the first day of every week, which is Sunday. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up. So when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now, did you notice in here it says... On the first day of the week, each one of you 
should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Now, this is one of the reasons why we don't pass the bag. I like no collections having to be made. It's you and me who has to set it aside and do that for the benefit of the church, the church where you receive your feeding from, your primary place of eating, spiritually speaking. And if there's something else you want to give to someone else or to some other cause, that would be called an offering. But the primary place where you receive your spiritual feeding, that's where you're supposed to give. And cheerfully or hilariously, Second Corinthians 9, 7, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And not compulsory. It, it, there's no compulsion in it. Like, I, I will not... I will not devote an entire month to teaching you why stewardship is a good thing. We already know. I don't have to beat you guys over the head. I know some churches, they will spend a full month on stewardship. You fill in the month. And they'll let you know what it's supposed to be. Now, you give. It's in your heart. The Lord can guide you. Sixth, generously or abundantly. You're supposed to give a lot. Have you ever known somebody who's really stingy? Where they just hold their money back and they won't be generous? Like waiters and waitresses. Now, I used to be a waiter. And when I was a waiter, there were people who would just be tremendously generous. And I would walk away just grateful. And then there are the Christians who would leave the folded track that looks like a $20 bill and nothing else. And my And I was a Christian at that time. My heart would just... Ooh, you know, this is where I get my income from. And you, I did all this work. And you start getting in your heart. You go, stop it. You are supposed to serve whether you get a reward or not. That's the way we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to change our heart to be like God's heart. But we're supposed to give generously, no matter if it's an offering or it's to the church. If you want a small reward in heaven, give not generously. Give sparingly. If you want a big reward in heaven, Give generously. And some people might say, well, you know, they didn't spend the money the way that I thought they should. I leave that in the hands of those who I had give to. And now I, I check them out first to make sure they're just not charlatans like some of the televangelists who are out there. But if you give it to the person, do you think that every ministry that exists has some, in some way made a mistake financially? I would say, yeah, this one. Now, I don't know exactly what it might be here. If it was, I would tell you, but yeah, I'm sure we have because we're not perfect. And so I'm just leaving that in God's realm. If they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, according to scripture, you give them the money, you let them handle it and you let them deal with it and let God sort it out who gets the reward and who doesn't. God is good about doing that. And he is fair and he is just. And even those who are rich uh, command them to, excuse me, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. First Timothy chapter six verse eighteen, and so that's the idea of giving. That's how we're supposed to give. Now, what about prayer? The Jews would get together and they'd pray at nine o'clock, twelve o'clock, and three o'clock. They have three times of prayer. If you go to Israel today and you go to the Western Wall, you'll see these young 
uh, observant Jews, Hasidic Jews especially, they'll all be cowered in a corner and huddling together because they don't want to touch the Gentiles who are coming into the area because that may make them unclean before they go to prayer. And, and they do this just, and they get before the wall and they have their phylacteries on and they go back and forth like this and they're about, and they think that that's more spiritual and they have their tassels and they have their hair coming down to the side of the heads. And they're very devout when it comes to prayer, but it's something that they feel they have to do. The Muslim guy that I know, uh, he is very devout with his prayer. Very devout. And so the Jews would do this. Well, what about prayer? Well, you've heard the acronym ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Uh, You can do that where we adore Christ, we adore God because of who he is and what he has done. We confess our sins. We give him thanks for everything that he has provided for us. And supplication, will you heal and you have a laundry list? Will you bring in more income and you have a laundry list of things that you would like him to bless. So that's one way to look at it. But if you go to the prayer that Jesus offered, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the Father, and that signifies our relationship with him. When Jesus said, pray, pray to the Father. He is your heavenly Father. We have a familial relationship, a family relationship with him. He is friendly towards us. His desire is towards us because we have been justified. He goes on to, and we also declare his holiness, uh, a way that often his designation or his name or his title would be given in the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's a distinct individual who is that God. And so you declare who he is. You call him holy. You can call him righteous. You can call him good. There is only one who is good. All of those things, you recognize that you have a relationship and you recognize who he is in his holiness. And so that's how Jesus starts his prayer. Then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so this idea that our prayers run through the filter of god's will for instance uh, i years and years ago i had a woman call up here at the church and she wanted to know if i would perform a wedding for her and i said well yeah we'd be interested in doing that for you can i uh, ask you a few questions and i asked her some questions and she was definitely a believer she said she had come from a pentecostal background and i said well what about your fiance uh, does he go to church? And she goes, well, no, he doesn't go to church. I said, is he a Christian? And she said, no, he's not a Christian. And of course, according to Second Corinthians, it says you're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So should she pray about marrying this guy? The answer is no. It's already declared in Scripture. What about if you're so angry at somebody you'd like to go kill him? Should you pray about killing him? Lord, should I kill this guy? No, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Lord, I really like that guy's motorcycle i want it should you desire that thing in your heart to the point where you're all always lusting after it no why because it's one of the ten commandments well should you go steal it lord should i steal this for my benefit you know i could use it for ministry if you just give it to me no you don't have to pray about that stuff so we we filter our prayers through the will of god how do you know the will of god through the holy spirit and through the word If you don't know those two things, you don't know what God's will is. And so that's how we pray our prayers. First, recognizing God as our Father, that He is holy, and we want our prayers to be filtered through His will. Then also give us today our daily bread. Will you please give me food, Lord? Make provision for my physical needs. That's what He's saying here. And it shows our reliance on Him 
to provide what we have. And we often don't recognize that. When, when we go into the store, did you guys ever see that commercial on television where the guy, it, it focuses in on this guy, and this guy, he has really big brown eyes, and his mouth is open, and he's kind of looking up, and he's going, and his eyebrows are raised a little bit, and he looks a little confused, he looks a little befuddled, and he's in a supermarket, and all he's looking at are all the different kinds of breads that are up there. And he's going, which bread? Which one should I get? We have such an abundance here. I mean, it is just overwhelming what we have. We don't have one bread. We have bread with cracked wheat. We have bread with oats. We have bread with potatoes. We have bread with you fill in the blank. I mean, we have so much. We go, God, will you please provide for us? He has provided. That's where it goes in to give thanks to the Lord because he has made such a provision for us. If you go to some of these third rural countries, it's not like that. They don't have shelves stocked all the way down for, you know, 50 feet or 100 feet. And so we ask God, we recognize that he is the one that provides, and we ask him to continue to provide. That is the outline that Jesus gives. And then he talks about, forgive us our debts, any sins that we have committed, anything, any trespass, any way that we have violated God's command. He says, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this is a contingent prayer. This prayer we are asking is that, Lord, will you forgive me, as I have forgiven. So if we don't forgive, what's the opposite? We are not forgiven. And so that unforgiveness, that grudge holding, that should not be a part of us, that is prohibited, so to speak, that is something that is less than full of grace and full of mercy. And God says we want to make sure, as he instructs us how to pray, that we forgive and then God will forgive us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I don't know if you saw this a couple of months ago. Pope Francis came out and he wanted to change this prayer. Now, this is part of the liturgy in the Catholic Church. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they recite that prayer in the Catholic Church. But he's changing it. And the place that he is changing it is, and lead us not into temptation. This is kind of like, when you read that, you go, does God lead me into temptation? Does God grab a hold of me, metaphorically speaking, pull me up to this temptation and say, here, go, get, yeah, what do you think? Does God do that? Well, he doesn't. God does not tempt us with evil. We know that in scripture. That is very clear. So why does it say, and lead us not into temptation? Well, the Pope, thinks it should read differently. And actually, I think I kind of agree with him. What he said was, the phrase that is listed in Scripture, and lead us not into temptation, it should be changed to one that means, do not let us fall into temptation. I'm thinking, well, that makes a lot more sense with the character of God. Because this would implore God to come and convict us when we get ready to fall into temptation because of our free will. And so that's what we're asking God to do. Not lead us into temptation, but do not let us fall into temptation. And so that, you know, 
I can go with that. I can get behind that. It may cause problems with the tradition inside of the Catholic Church because they are all about tradition. It, you could hear it ringing from the rooftops or the steeple tops saying something like, we've always done it this way. We've done it this way for hundreds of years. Why are we going to change it now? What's wrong with this Pope? He ought not to be doing that. And all of a sudden they violate Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. And, you know, it's tough. It's tough being consistent. And, and he is certainly consistent in the things that he says. I don't agree with everything that the Pope has out there. But with this one, I'm going to give him some grace on this one. Verse 14 says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And so we have to keep this in mind when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, the way he outlined it, that should be the mark of a nice, healthy, full time of prayer with the Lord. Now the purpose of prayer, adoration and communion, we're supposed to simply adore the Lord. You, you are so good, Lord. The things that you have done for us, and I want a fellowship with you. And a lot of times we just speak, and our mouths or our brains just run off at the handle, and we don't take time to listen. Now, I'm not saying God's going to speak to you in an audible voice, just like he talked to Moses. I, I'm not sure that's going to happen. And if it does, I would say, you better double-check. What's going on here? There's also this idea of confession, intercession, petition, submission, and thanksgiving. All of those things are in the full-bodied prayer that Jesus is talking about here. And then there's postures of prayer, which is the right way to pray. Standing, sitting, or laying flat, or kneeling. Which one? The answer is yes, all of them. They're all good. And you can do them all in one sitting if you want, or one standing, or however you want to do it. It used to be a habit in some of the monasteries that they would lay out in the position of a cross with their face right to the ground, and they would pray in that fashion. Another time you would see a Jew raising his hands and praying to God. And and we don't pray like that here. We normally, let's fold our hands and bow our hearts, well, our heads, and we'll pray. And nothing wrong with that, but that's how we do it. You know, that's the proper way. Your emojis. What do your emojis show? Your emojis show this, right? Your emojis show this? Well, maybe at a party, but not certainly for prayer. It doesn't. And I don't know of an emoji yet that they have of somebody kneeling. Maybe there is an emoji like that. I don't know. Or prostrate on the ground, just laying there. This idea of prayer, you can, what if you're in a plane, you're the only one flying it, and it goes, is going down, you can pray like this. You know, you, you can pray in any position whatsoever, it doesn't matter. And so if somebody says, no, you have to pray like this, this is the right way, it doesn't matter. Now what's the value of prayer? What does it do for us? What does God want to accomplish in us when we pray? It assures one of the Lord's presence, that he's right there. And if you haven't had the touch of the Lord when you've been in prayer, you haven't been in prayer. At least not the full-bodied prayer. He can minister to us like nobody else can. Prayer brings blessing from God because we're being obedient. Uh, Prayer brings help in time of need. 
All through the Old Testament, the Jews sought the Lord to be delivered, and they were delivered. The stories of the founding of this country, I've talked to you about that before, the Puritans and what they did and how they sought the blessing of the Lord because they were in a time of need, and the Lord answered. It brings joy. It brings spiritual and physical and and, um, emotional healing, which is so necessary for many of us out there. It brings understanding. You know, how many times after prayer have you had a question and all of a sudden the understanding just comes to you or it comes to you in the midst of seeking the understanding? Now, it's bizarre when it takes place, it's, but it's a spiritual act. The Lord wants us to know things and he just gives us the understanding. And that's one of the side effects, the benefits of prayer. It's powerful and effective. It pleases God. It strengthens us against temptation. These are all the benefits to prayer. And the less we pray, the less benefit inures to us because of the lack of prayer. What are hindrances to prayer? Anxiety. Be anxious about nothing but by prayer and supplication. Let your request be made known to God. And he says, don't worry. Anxiety means you're worrying. Oh, I don't know. And you're just like on pins and needles all the time. Well, what am I going to do? What can you do? I, I am a testament to the, I can't add one hair to my head, you know, because of prayer. And, and, and so there's nothing that I can do, or excuse me, because of worrying. I can't add anything to my height, my stature, my strength, my, any of that, because I worry. And so God says, don't worry. Just let your request be made known to God. And peace which passes understanding, he will fill us with that peace. And so if you're given to worry, just stop it. Worry is actually a sinful behavior. It's not like the seven deadly sins or anything, but it is still sin. And the respect of all sins are equal, it's still sin. And so we want to make sure that we're not worrying. And disobedience hinders prayer. Several times in Scripture it's listed, if you're not doing what you're supposed to, when you start praying, it's like they're hitting a glass ceiling. They're not making it through. Uh, Doubts, I don't know if God will do this. Pray like you mean it. Uh, I want to bring this up, Eric. (laughs) He's looking up now. (laughs) We, We were in the youth, and Eric was over there, and I was over there. You recall this, right? And I, I went around the youth and went to the adults who were in there too. And I was teaching about prayer. And I said, I want you to pray something that you just think is impossible, that will not take place. You, there's no way, maybe in God's economy, but you're not seeing it in your economy. And so I, I told the kids, pray for something big, something really big. And Eric he prayed for the salvation of his father. And uh, how long was it? Yeah, well, yeah. How long have you been praying all together? Yeah. How long? 25 years he's been praying. <clears throat> and then how long was it after you prayed the prayer in there? It was a couple years. And now he goes to my old church, Calvary Chapel of Mesa. When he came here and visited... He walked up and says, do you have an outline for the sermon? Because he wants the notes. He wants to fill them in. The guy's going every Sunday. He's like, a torch, you know? And I think it's directly related 
to him praying. He goes, okay, Lord, I want my dad to be saved, like incredibly saved. And he gets incredibly saved. And he was praying for him for 25 years. So when you're praying, pray big. Pray like you mean it. And if, and if you know that God can answer, right? But if you go, well, I don't know if he will or not. What, what kind of doubting is that? That's double-minded. You know, James talks about that. Uh, I was recently on the ocean and doing this, right? And tossed back and forth, and I'm trying to compensate with my legs going back and forth and up and down as that boat is just kind of going out there in the water. And it says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It's kind of like the waves, a boat on the waves that goes back and forth, and you just don't know which direction you're going. And God says, stop it. May the ocean be calm and just stay steadfast. And so if you're doubting, <laughs> it would be like you and I. We get together, and uh, I say, well, I'm going to be at church at 6 o'clock. I'll see you then. And you start going, well, will you really be there? Yes, I'll be there. 6 o'clock. Well, I'm not sure if you will. Well, I told you I'd be there. Well, what do you mean? Well, just show up at 6 o'clock. I'll be there. Well, okay, but I'm, you know, I'm just not convinced. What would I want to do at that point? Tell the person, just stay home then. Don't be coming to church if you don't think I'm going to be here. There's something mild like that. Well, what if we turn to God and we make this request known to him? If you would, you know, I really appreciate it, but I know you probably won't. You get the picture? I'm going on. Hypocrisy hinders prayer. Idolatry hinders prayer. Improper relationships hinders prayer. Meaningless repetition hinders prayer. Praying contrary to God's will, you, you won't hear, or God won't hear the prayer. He won't listen to the prayer. Refusal to help the poor hinders prayer. Those who are truly poor, if we close our eyes and our ears to those who call out for help, then that's a hindrance to prayer. Unconfessed sin hinders prayer. So when are we to pray? Well, of course, it says we're to pray without ceasing. But when we are in danger, Psalm 91, when we are depressed, Psalm 34 and 13, when we are worried, Philippians 4, and facing a crisis, Psalm 121, I have scriptures for all of these. When we're discouraged, when we're tempted, when we're lonely, when we're needing courage, when we're seeking forgiveness, when we're in doubt, when we're needing assurance, and to give thanksgiving, and also when we're joyful. It's going good. Oh, I cannot believe how good it's going for me. You turn to the Lord and go, thanks, God. You did this. You blessed me with X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. You fill in the blank. So all those times we're supposed to pray, and that's not an exhaustive list. When are we supposed to pray? When driving, when getting up in the morning, when brushing your teeth, when you're eating your blueberry pancakes with the syrup all over the top. You know, whatever you thanks, Lord, this ah, this is just great. So pray constantly. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse seventeen, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. And so this practice to avoid in corporate prayer, there are certain things with corporate prayer. I have seven minutes here. <clears throat> Private prayer is different than corporate prayer. In corporate prayer, there is 
there are some who will pray and they sound eloquent and they've written out their prayers. Wonderful. Great. I think it's fantastic that they would do something like that. There are those who pray and they really get into it and they're forceful with the prayer and they're humble with the prayer. All of that is good. Have you ever have somebody in a prayer group manipulate prayer where they just go on and on and on and on and you look at your watch during prayer and you go it's been 20 minutes and prayer is only supposed to last 15 minutes and they're the only ones that have prayed well this idea when you have corporate prayer everybody should be praying now some people have a problem praying out loud I get that. You don't want to force anybody to do that. You don't want to stand up and say, are you going to pray, man? Come on, get with it. You you don't want to do something like that. It will come. It will eventually surface if the person walks with the Lord long enough, they will pray out loud. But there are also those who give information to others in prayer. Lord, you know what a sinner they are, and they've been struggling for years, and they've been sick for weeks, and they got themselves in trouble. And you know the trouble, Lord, that they've been in and how they were disobedient in this particular area. But, Lord, you know all of that, and you're dishing out on somebody else in corporate prayer. You can just say, Lord, I'm lifting this person up. You know their struggles, and they're tough. Would you help them? The Lord knows exactly what you're praying for. Everybody else may not know. And if somebody comes up and goes, says, so what's going on? Say, so just pray for him. Just pray for that individual. And so we, we want to make sure that we're not dishing out on somebody else when we're in corporate prayer. We want to make sure we're limiting our time for the sake of others who can also pray because they have things to pray in a corporate prayer setting. And by the way, in Matthew chapter 18, we'll get there and I'll remind you of it when we do get there. It says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. It's not referring to prayer. It's referring to church discipline. And I'll expand more when we get on that particular subject there in Matthew chapter 18. But it's this idea that people have when there are two people, it's more powerful. When there are 10 people, it's great. If there are 100 people, God surely must answer the prayer. Because of that. Not true. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And it's not just the man. It's the woman too. The righteous woman, when she prays, the prayer is powerful and effective. So whether it's one person or it's many people praying, we all want to be of one heart and one mind in corporate prayer, but it doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to go well or in the direction of the crowd. Like Jeremiah He was the one holdout prophet. Everybody else was praying blessing and everything good's coming from God. The prophecies were just wonderful. And he was the only one that was right. And so we want to make sure that we don't dish out on people. And and we want to make sure that we understand it's not just two or three that make it strong. It can be an individual that makes it strong. Or we get preachy. Somebody is in the group and you have something with them. Something that's not good. And you're just kind of carrying on in your prayer, kind of describing how people ought to be in the kingdom of God. And you just want to let them know a little bit how they need to shape up, but you're not saying anything about them directly. It's all indirectly, just so that they'll understand. Because obviously, 
They haven't been spending enough time with the Lord so the Lord can tell them, so it's your job, right? And, and that's covered by Matthew, both in chapter 5 and chapter 18. And I've already covered the prolonged prayer, but it also says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your, let your words be few. And that is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. Now, I'll close on this one before I get into fasting and next week but it does say pray without ceasing how do you bring that alongside with let your words be few (laughs) there's a lot of disagreement and a lot of agreement it just depends on who you talk to on this there are things that you can just ramble on and on and on god is he is a quote-unquote person he has personality how you talk to somebody else reverentially it's supposed to be how we talk to god our father revel reverentially and you're in some such uh social settings where you just don't ramble off at the mouth you just don't have quote-unquote diarrhea of the mouth where everything is just you're just talking about everything all the time and it's like well what what exactly have you ever seen the interviews like on political tv or uh some station a radio station where the person says, so what exactly is your question? Because they've just been rambling on and on and on and on, and God knows exactly what we need, and we can make our requests short and sweet. We can be respectful of who he is. If you walked into a king's presence, would you just ramble on, you know what I did today? And do you think the king wants to know what you did today? Why are you before the king? He wants to know what's going on, why you're before him. That type of thing. But we also, on the other hand, have a relationship with him. He wants us to commune with him. He wants us to communicate with him in a sweetly fashion like we would with a spouse. Like, uh, this is my day, this is what took place, and you're clear and you're concise. Not rambling on and on and just making a nonsensical statement. So when you get before God, recognize that he is the king. He is our father. He is holy. He understands that we have requests. We bring those requests to him. We tell him our concerns. We pour out our heart to him. But don't be verbose to the point of rambling, where your words are just scattered all over the place, and you think God wants to listen to that. Some people would say, well, he does want to listen to that. He wants to know everything in your heart. He's the king. He is God. We treat him with respect. But we also are endearing towards him. We tell him how we love him, how we are thankful to him for everything he has done. And we solidify our relationship just like any good relationship. We don't ramble on. We don't say repetitive lines over and over. But we have this biting, deep relationship with God. That is what prayer is about. Next week, I will go into fasting and what fasting is all about. But it you know, as I close out here, I want to make sure you guys have a, a fervent prayer life, that you're spending time with them, that you give the way that Scripture modeled for us, and that you pray accordance with the Lord's Prayer, doing all those things, spending time with Him. And if you do, you'll be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we Thank you for your word, your guidance, everything that is listed here. And these are things we understand we're to be participating in. The giving, the prayer, and the fasting. 
We ask, Lord, that you would fill us full of wisdom. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And with your help, we'll do so. And it's in his name we pray and ask these things. And everyone said...